says, I want to pose a question for you to think about as we read the scripture, as we go through this this morning. Do you care about what God cares about? Is your heart aligned with God's heart? Now let's look at the text. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I remember the time well. It was January 1996. Evie and I were preparing to move from Philadelphia to Oklahoma. For us, who lived all our lives in the Northeast, that was our cross-cultural move. We were there on a house hunting trip, and it was Sunday morning, we had just finished worship, and we were out to lunch with a few of the elders when all of a sudden I got a glimpse of the news. Philadelphia and the Northeast was in for record-breaking blizzard. They got over 30 inches of snow with drifts about five or six feet. It was amazing. Now, we lived, realtors called it a duplex. It was a city row home. And so we lived in that, and we went home to the task of cleaning up. Now, I'm going to say this right away as I get vulnerable and I share with you. And the next thing I'm about to say, Evie was 100% right, I was 100% wrong. It was one of our more memorable conflicts. <laughs> and it related to typical male pride. Okay, so here we are. We've got to clean up everything. We've got to make paths to shovel. There's no driveways. Our car is parked on the street. It's buried. I couldn't find the car. And snow was up, it was, this is city row home, so it went kind of up like this. Snow was up to the second story, and there was an awning that you had to hang out the second story window and get a broom and push it off the awning. Now, there were two kids walking by at that time, 
And these two kids offered to do all this for me for like $50. And Evie's going, let's hire them. Male pride kicks in. I go, no, I can do it myself. And so, of course, after I'm not sure how three days or whatever, and after the memorable conflict, yes, I, I'm still alive to talk about it, and I got the job done. But here is one of the things that I want us to think about that relates to our passage this morning. When you are clearing your car, especially you're clearing your path on the car, you're unburying and stuff, one of the things, one of the dangers is you could clear your own spot by dumping the snow in someone else's spot. They weren't happy with that. Now, I didn't do that, but a lot of people did. And in Philadelphia, don't always buy the hype of City of Brotherly Love. It does cause conflicts. In other words, it is possible to clear your path, take care of yourself, while putting a stumbling block in the path of your neighbors. I share that story because that sums up Paul's basic concern here in this passage. His concern is that we can use our legitimate freedom, our legitimate rights, our legitimate opinions in such a way that damages and causes our siblings, meaning our brothers and sisters in the church, those for whom Christ died, damage and problems in their relationship with Christ. In other words, it is possible to clear your path, but block another's path. And that's the issue that Paul is getting here. He's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us amazing freedom. But it's not as much a freedom from as it is a freedom to live out God's design of love. And it is possible to misuse our freedom and destroy relationships. The very thing God cares most about to destroy what God is doing. So let me ask you this question. Are you destroying or building up what God is doing? Look at this text. Two things in this text. Two things as we go through this. We need to understand the danger of misusing our freedom, legitimate freedom, and two, we need to understand how to use our freedom to build up. The danger of misusing our freedom and understand how to use our freedom. Look with me at verse 13 and understand that in the basic Jewish image for conduct or behavior was that of walking. Think about how many times we read in the scripture. Paul, just to give you one example, says in Ephesians chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walking was the Jewish image, so walking along a path was the Jew, basic Jewish metaphor, basic Jewish in, image for conduct or behavior. So here's the picture Paul is painting. He's saying we're all walking on a path, the path of life. Christ has purchased our freedom, but he's purchased our freedom not to be used to put a hindrance in our neighbor's path. Everything we do, everything we do has an impact on others. We like to think we live in a bubble, that what we do doesn't, oh, it's not going to bother anybody. If I share my opinion, 
It's not going to bother anybody else. Everything we do, everything we say has an impact on others. Now look with me at verse 13, because here's what Paul says. Here's his instruction, and he's talking about the danger of misusing our freedom. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. In other words, he's saying, therefore, and the therefore is based on what's preceded. And what did he, what preceded? The fact that Jesus is Lord of all, that we will all give account to God, that none of us lives to himself. What are you talking about in verses 7 to 12? None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself, but we all belong to the Lord. So therefore, what's the application of we belong to the Lord? How we treat each other. Isn't that interesting that relationship is the application that Paul gives for lordship? And then he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment. And it actually means don't be in the habit of criticizing. The actual Greek term that's used there has the idea of a critical spirit. I read that, I studied this week, and I said, oh no, it's time to take another vacation. <laughs> Sometimes I think being critical can be my spiritual gift. Usually I'm the most critical on myself, but I can be critical of others as well. And here's Paul saying, because none of us lives to ourselves, none of us dies to ourselves, we belong to the Lord. Don't be in the habit of criticizing but rather, and it's interesting here, he says, but rather decide. In other words, and remember, all of this coming out of chapter 12 is that we are transformed. Character is developed in us by the renewing of our minds. So decide means make a commitment. Make this commitment never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul is telling us to make a commitment to not have our freedoms, not have our rights, not have our opinions, not have our preferences trip up a family member. He is saying it's absolutely right and appropriate. Remember he's talking about, we talked about this last week, disputable matters. This is not about do I obey the Ten Commandments or not. But these are all about matters of conscience. Things along the lines of does a Christian drink alcohol or not? How does a Christian apply the workings of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day? How does a Christian dress for worship? What type of appropriately doctrinal song or music do we play in worship? These are all disputable matters, and Paul is saying, have your conviction, have your opinion, take it by faith, be fully convinced in your mind, there's no problem with having an opinion, but it better not trip up another person. It better not destroy or damage a relationship with another person. The passage is concerned in the context of Romans. The issue is the eating of meat, specifically meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul is instructing them, those who legitimately and rightly exercise their freedom, to hold back using their freedom for the sake of those whose walk with Christ would be hindered. The literal word means tripwire, tripped up by their behavior. Now the historical context is actually quite interesting here. 
Because we need to recognize Romans was written by Paul sometime shortly after the year A.D. 54 from Corinth. And the year A.D. 54 is significant because this is when many Jewish followers of Jesus were returning to Rome after they were kicked out of Rome by an edict from the Emperor Claudius somewhere around the year A.D. 49. So the church in Rome, most historians believe, was largely Jewish at first, but then here the Jewish people kicked out of the city by Emperor Claudius, and so many Gentiles came in, and the church was growing this way. And the Gentiles did not have the same scruples over these matters of conscience, of things like eating food, sacrifice to idols, and stuff like that. So when the Jewish believers were beginning to return in A.D. 54, they would see these Gentiles doing things which from their perspective was horrific. Now you think Paul would be rebuking them. No. In this text, he's speaking particularly to the Gentiles here about the dangers of misusing their freedom. He's telling them, yes, you have the freedom to do this, but prioritize the relationship over these matters that you have a right to do. Feel free to do them but prioritize the relationship, not the issue. In other words, he's telling them, look at the ramifications for their relationships. And he doesn't quote it, but I can't help he's thinking of Jesus' words in the upper room when Jesus said, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Sometimes I think the church really thinks, by this all men will know your disciples because you get everything right, because you're completely pure, because you have every issue right. That's not what Jesus said. He said how we relate to one another is the greatest apologetic for the world. What the world is out there, friends, I want you to realize this. Lake Oconee is watching us. Lake Oconee is watching something very specific. They're watching how we relate to one another. They're watching whether they can come in here and feel safe. They're watching whether they can come in here and feel welcomed. They're watching whether they can come in here and they'll feel judged. They'll feel like, uh-oh, everybody's got their opinions. Is this a place that I can be free to be a mess, to be broken, to grow? How we relate is meant to reveal God to the world. What are we revealing about God to Lake Oconee? Now look at how Paul lays out these dangers. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, he's saying, he's saying I'm one of the ones, even though I'm Jewish, I'm one of the ones, I can eat meat, I can drink wine, I can do all this, but guess what? It is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And he says, and again, he's rebuking those who are misusing their freedoms. He's saying, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Those are strong words. He says, by what you eat, by your exercising, your preference, your opinion, what you have the right to do, you are destroying the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
And then he says, verse 17, here's a complete reversal of the priorities of the kingdom of God. Because he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of all these petty issues. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It is a matter of righteousness, which is a highly relational word. Because it's the same word as justice. And biblical justice means rightly ordered relationships. So Paul is saying, the kingdom of God is not about these things. The kingdom of God is about right relationships and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. For God's reign is not about what we eat or drink. It's about matters of relationships. Tim Keller put it very well. He says they must see that rules and regulations about material things miss the point of the kingdom. The point is transformed character, joy, peace, wisdom, and love. Look at how significant this, this is. Do not for the sake of food, do not for the sake of your conviction, do not for the sake of your preference, destroy the work of Christ. One commentator put it this way, he said, conduct that is supposed to honor God has the opposite effect of injuring Christ's body. We need to understand how significant the union of Christ and his body is. We often refer to Jesus as what? The head of the church. Is a head ever disconnected from the body? It would no longer live. Very interesting. I don't know how many of you are doing the community Bible reading. I gave a plug for the choir. I'll give a plug for the community Bible reading real quick. Because yesterday we read Acts chapter 9, which was Paul's conversion. And he was known as Saul back then. And Saul was going around persecuting, attacking, and destroying Christians. And when the risen, glorified Jesus revealed himself to Paul, or Saul, on the Damascus Road, he said to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the first thought that went through my mind, I'm reading through this yesterday, and I'm kind of going, if I were Saul, I would go, wait a second. First of all, who are you? And he asks that question. And I'm not persecuting you. Didn't you read the edict? I'm going about destroying Christians, the followers of the way. And Jesus says, when you destroy Christians, what you do to Christians, how you treat others, how you treat them, is how you treat Jesus. Friends, do we care about what Jesus cares about? Jesus said in John 15, as the Father loves me, so I love you. Jesus doesn't just, it's a both and here, he doesn't just love us individually. He loves us corporately. He loves his body. He loves his bride. He gave his life for us. How we treat one another is reflective of how we treat Jesus. Your attitude towards your fellow believers is your attitude toward Jesus. Do we care about what Jesus cares about? Now, those are the dangers. You don't want me to stop there, do you? How do we go about actually using our freedom? Verse 19 is interesting here because he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 
There's an interesting contrast in this passage because Paul is always contrasting here what destroys misusing our freedom, what tears down versus building up. And he's saying you're always doing one or the other. You are always giving life, taking life away. You are always destroying or building up. And then he says in verse 19, here's what we're to do. Verse 13, he said, we have to make this commitment. I'm not going to cause my brother or sister a hindrance or a stumbling block. He says, instead, let us pursue. In other words, this has to be part of our positive commitment. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Now, let me ask you the question, how do we do that? And here's the truth, and here's the good news. We can't. We don't have the power or the resources to do that. But Jesus does. And let's ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus do to make for peace? What did Jesus do so we could have peace with God? Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul wrote, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do to make for peace? What did Jesus do so we could have peace with God? Paul, in another letter, put it this way. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's what Jesus did to make for peace. He gave up what he had in order that we could have what he had. He gave up what he had, life, on the cross, so we could have life. A mark of love is always about disempowering yourself to empower other peoples. Love is always about sacrifice. Tim Keller put it this way, so rightly says, all love, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. You have never loved a broken person. You have never loved a guilty person. You have never loved a hurting person except through substitutionary sacrifice. All love involves giving up your power, giving up your status, giving up your rights, giving up yourself for the sake of the other. And of course we don't do that on our own, but that's what Jesus did for us. Think about what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says that though he was rich, what does it mean Jesus was rich? He only owns everything. How rich is that? There's the top 1%. Oh, and then there's Jesus. That though he was rich, he had it all. And I'm not talking here about just material things. He had all power. He had all wisdom. He had all sufficiency. He had all strength. He had all love. He had all wisdom. He had everything. And what did he do? He gave it all up. He disempowered himself. He gave up his status as what? Lord of lords and king of kings. He put it aside so that you, through his giving up status and power, might become rich. And how rich are you, church? You're only declared righteous in Jesus Christ. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced we don't understand the good news of Jesus Christ and how good it is. The key 
to doing what is necessary for making peace is we have to be willing in our relationships to disempower ourselves. Lay down all your rights. You have a right to your freedoms. You have a right to your rights. You have a right to your opinions. The only way to love is you have to lay it aside and put it aside for the sake of the other person. And in the church, the other person is the person for whom Jesus died. The other person is your brother or sister. Do you realize that we are all siblings? That we belong to each other, that some of us here are going to be closer to one another because we're siblings in Christ than we are our own siblings, our own nuclear family, if we have members of our nuclear family that does not belong to Christ. Do you care about what Jesus cares about? And do you see how much he cares for you? See, you can give up your rights for others, but only through Jesus. Only as you go, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I come to thee for grace. Only as we see the requirements of love will we run to Jesus to receive his love. And as that overflows, we'll be able to love one another. And what a witness that'll be to Lake Oconee. That all Lake Oconee will know that we are followers of Jesus. Not followers of a program, a principle, a party. Followers of the Lord Jesus by the quality of how we relate to one another. That's a vision. I hope that's a vision we can get behind. Is it challenging? You better believe it. That I wake up in the middle of the night and kind of go, yeah, you got to preach this. This is what the text is. This is where you landed. Thank you, God's providence. But this is what the text is teaching us, and what a vision it is through the good news. Can you see why Paul earlier in the letter said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God? Let's let the gospel do its work in our lives.